Welcome to the Speak Like a Leader podcast with John Bates. Welcome to the show. With me today, I have a gentleman named Jonathan Hinton Westover. And Jonathan is a professor at Utah Valley University. He's also a consultant and he's the host of the Human Capital Innovations podcast. And the reason that I asked Jonathan to join me is because I've got a focus, as you know, right now on the Silicon Slopes here in, in the vicinity of Salt Lake City, Utah. And one of the things that kept coming up among the people that I've talked to who are running these great companies here in the Silicon Slopes in Utah is how much of a difference Utah Valley University has made. And so we reached out, got Jonathan on the podcast. Thanks for being with me today, John. I'm looking forward to talking with you about all kinds of things. And, uh, and you know, thanks for representing for, the, for UVU and the Silicon Slopes. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much for the invitation, and I'm excited for the conversation. Cool. Well, listen, let, let me ask you first, because I always like to go back to kind of the roots of things. You've, you know, you're clearly in a in a good position, in a successful position, making a difference for entrepreneurs. You're a consultant. You're a, you're a professor. Think back a ways to some of the first early good leaders that you had. What were some of those experiences? What, you know, who's somebody you could name them or, or not, but tell us, you know, about one of your early leaders and something big that you learned that made a difference for you. Yeah. We were talking in the pre-interview, just chatting and you, you teased that you probably asked this question. So I've been thinking about it a little bit and it's a hard question because the reality is most people, despite their good intentions, kind of suck at leadership. In my and so you know I again I think most people have good intentions I don't think there's malice that most people have but people don't know what they don't know they often don't really have a lot of training before they find themselves in leadership roles so they tend to perpetuate the same types of negative or unhealthy patterns they've seen in other leaders before them and you know all of that so as I was reflecting back on you know my teenage years and my early adulthood and, and early professional life. You know, I, I can think back to lots of leaders that I learned lessons from, uh, many of them um, lessons of what not to do, right? Yeah, yeah. well, that, that's an important lesson too, right? <laughs> so we can certainly talk about that. But, but as I was thinking about like those really impactful leaders and ones that were really positive, ones that really just made a difference in my life, there was one in particular, I won't name them by name, but this was as a, as a teenager, one individual, I grew up in Salem, Oregon, and uh, living in in Salem, you know, I, I had an opportunity to interact with a lot of different types of people at my high school. And, you know, I had a good childhood. I had a good upbringing and lots of people around me to support me. And, and some leaders were, you know, kind of met. Others were, were kind of negative. This one particular leader, though, he really stood out and, and just connected with me, resonated with me. And it, I think it all came down to I knew that this person genuinely cared about me. I knew that this person wanted to help me in any way that they could. And they had their own work that they needed to do. They had their focus and they had a lot of other responsibilities. And so it's not like they could devote all their time to me or anything like that. That was never the expectation. But I knew that even in the small sliver of attention that I might get from them, that that they genuinely cared and they genuinely wanted to help to see me succeed in life. 
uh, help help they helped me to think through you know the you know those tough teenage years and high school years yeah. and moving into like early professional life they helped me think through uh, what I'm good at what I like to do what I might want to do in the future they helped give me opportunities to develop skills uh, those sorts of things and so that honestly has been a model for me and and often I compare everyone every other leader that I see that I encounter I kind of go back and see how do they compare to this person who is genuine, authentic, uh, really cared about me and wanted to see me succeed. Now I've had others, you know, in the intervening years, I'm, I'm in my mid forties now. And so there's a long time has passed since my teenage years. And I've had leaders, you know, all along the spectrum, some that were pretty horrible and others that were pretty great. And, and most of them that are somewhere in between. Um, and I always compare them back to this guy because he, he just had that kind of an impact on me. And I, that's the kind of leader that I hope that I can be. I hope that people, regardless of my abilities, because I'm not, I'm going to say dumb things. I'm going to do dumb things at times. I'm not always going to be perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but I hope that everyone that I encounter and everyone that I lead will know that I genuinely care about them, that I genuinely want to support them and that I want to help them to fulfill their potential. And I feel like if I can do those things, even if I kind of fumble on a lot of the other stuff, that. Uh, that'll be a win. Uh, you know, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more, John. I think that uh, if there were one fundamental lesson of leadership that would make the biggest difference for anyone, regardless of what they know and don't know and all that stuff, it's what you just said, right? If you are a leader and you genuinely care for the people you're leading, and you step into that and, and your actions reflect that. Okay. Then I think everything else is pretty much gravy. Like, sure. There's a lot more beyond that, but if that piece is right, I mean, that, that it can to me, that's over a lot of other things that might not be great. Right. And, exactly. and every leader has a learning curve and they have their blind spots and you know, they're, they're going to make mistakes. There's no question about it. And I know that I do, I, I'm sure that there have been sure. times that I've offended people or I've hurt people's feelings I've, that I've, I've unintentionally undermined people or, you know, I'm sure those things happen. In some cases, I may not even be aware to this day that, that they happened or that I did that um, or that it, things were perceived that way. But when, when you build that foundation, you know, when there's a foundation of mutual accountability and trust and people know that you genuinely care for them, it smooths yeah. a lot of that other stuff over. And people give you the benefit of the doubt and they know that you're doing the best you can. And, you know, they're going to be forgiving towards you just like you would be patient and forgiving towards them. And so that makes, you know, a big, big difference. So that's something I strive for. I'm certainly not perfect at it, uh, but uh, it's something I strive for. Uh, and it seems simple. Uh, I agree with you. I think foundationally uh, this, this is, you know, what we've been talking about can be at the core of any great leader Uh but it's so simple that oftentimes it gets ignored. Uh, yeah. People, people just get so, you know, leaders are busy. They have a lot of responsibilities. They have things flying at them left and right all day long. Oftentimes they end up, you know, feeling like they're spending most of their day putting out fires. Uh, and it can be really easy to, you know, feel like in my heart, I care about my people and then to move on. And then to like get into yeah. all the day-to-day -day operational stuff and the nitty-gritty of like just making businesses work and run and trying to innovate and all those sorts of things. And then before you know it, 
you're disconnected from your people. And even though you care about them and you know you care about them, they don't know that you care about them. They don't know that yeah. you're there to try to support them. And you might be doing little things to undermine that perception of support. Uh, and so mm. it's a terrible thing, but it has to be something we focus on continually and make, you know, those those regular deposits in the the emotional bank of trust with our people. Well, and you know, it brings up for me one of the what I what I mean, I know from personal experience with myself and all of my clients, one of the difficult things, uh, which is, you know, if you as a leader genuinely care for people, that doesn't always mean that you're just going to be nice and let it right. slide and whatever, right? Like if you, the, the people who genuinely cared for me were also some of the people that pushed me the hardest and right. demanded the most from me. And, and I think that that's another aspect of genuinely, genuinely caring about people and their growth and their progress and, you know, that kind of thing. I, I absolutely agree. And I think, you know, some people don't like confrontation or they don't like conflict. They like, they want everyone to like them all the time. Um, those sorts of things um, are, are nice, I suppose. So if I have a team around me and we all love each other and we all care for each other and we all like each other, fantastic. But that's really not what leadership is and that's not genuine. So because that puts it back on me, right? If, if that's my focus, then it's all about, I want to make sure people like me. I want to make sure people are comfortable with me and it's not about the person. And so whether yep. they ultimately I need to focus on, on them. And sometimes that means they need some tough love. Sometimes that means they need some redirection. Uh, they need some coaching, some mentoring. They need a push in the right direction. And if you're going to help people fulfill their potential, then ultimately you're going to have to sometimes have challenging, difficult conversations. And you need to make sure um, that that emotional bank is, is uh, filled up enough that people can hear what you're saying and they know that you're coming from a place of genuine care. Yeah. I think that's a really, really good point. Like people are, are much, it's much easier for people to hear what might be considered the tough stuff. If they know that you genuinely care about them and that the reason you're giving them the tough stuff is because you want them to grow. Yeah, I, I think so. And I apologize. I know my, my camera went off and I'm not sure if there's a quick fix to that. It's okay. We're just recording sound anyway. So okay, uh, if, it, if it comes back, great. And if it doesn't, then, you know, you're not making too funny a face on my side. So <laughs> it's all good. So, so Jonathan, um, tell me, like, I want to ask you two different questions. So just to put a pin in it so I don't forget either of them. One of the other questions that I think we can really learn from is and I didn't prep you for this, so I hope it's okay. <laughs> but what was one of the worst moments of your career so far? Like what was one of the moments when you were the most tempted to stop believing in yourself, the most tempted to give up the, yeah. like, you know, one of those moments. And what did you learn from that experience? Do you, is that a, is that an okay question? Sure. Sure. And maybe I'll just go back to you. You provided a nice introduction right at the beginning of, of the recording. Uh, I am a professor, so I'm, I'm a full professor at Utah Valley University. Uh, I've been here for over 13 years. I teach HR, leadership, organizational development, change management, those sorts of topics. Um, I'm a department chair uh, in the School of Business, and it's been a tremendous place to be. Um, and so I do that. I do consulting work. 
Uh, and I've certainly had ups and downs in both my academic and practitioner careers. Um, to respond to your question, though, I think I'll focus on an academic setback that was really, uh-huh. really hard uh, at the time. So this was a number of years ago. Um, and, and essentially, I was passed over for a promotion, um, mm-hmm. an opportunity to, to take on a leadership role in in uh, the campus leadership structure and executive structure. And uh, it was something I wasn't even sure. I wasn't sure I wanted to do it, but I, I thought I should put my name in the hat. I should give it a whirl. And I go through the process. I'm a finalist. And ultimately, they choose someone else. Uh, now, everyone has experienced that. Everyone has experienced setbacks or has, have experienced things not working out the way they hoped. Um, and for me, and this probably speaks to my privilege and the many layers of privilege that I enjoy, but uh, that was one of the first major career setbacks that I felt like I'd ever had. Um, I've always been successful. I've been productive. I've accomplished a lot of things. And, you know, I, not everything always works out the way I want and not everything's roses all the time, but by and large, when I put my mind to it, things tend to work out the way I hope or, or better than the way I hope. And, and so when this didn't work out, you know, I, I, I went into a funk, uh, for sure. And, you know, I, I felt like I didn't have the trust or, you know, upper administration and leadership at the, at the uh, university. I felt like maybe they didn't recognize my contributions. You know, I start to go through all this self-talk, um, most of which probably is not accurate and probably has nothing to do with anything. They just chose who they chose. Right. And it didn't happen. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I, I slipped into, you know, a bit of just probably a little bit of self-loathing, depression, just feeling discouraged. Right. Yeah. At that point, yeah. I had a choice. I, you know, we've all been there. I had a choice of whether I was going to allow that kind of setback or discouragement define me, or if I would, try to pave a new path and do something that would still be meaningful and awesome. Uh, and I will say that has been the experience that I've had. Uh, while it's still, when I think back to that whole time and that process, it still stings a little bit. And I still, you know, it's, yeah. it's, a, little, it's a little tender. It's not something I didn't like enjoy that experience, but <laughs> as I look back now in the intervening six or so years, um, I'm so glad I didn't get that position <laughs> because yeah, things have worked out wonderfully. And, and there are so many opportunities that I had that came about because I wasn't in that position that I wouldn't have had otherwise. So the fact that it didn't work out, that I didn't get that promotion, uh, it, 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 it closed one door, but it, it kept a bunch of other doors open. And, and I've had a lot of successes and a lot of positive things that have come from it. So, you know, it, it sounds cliche and it's probably, it sounds kind of corny, but it, really rings true for me that uh, that we can look at any of these obstacles that we face and yes, can they be setbacks? Can they be demoralizing? Can they be frustrating? Can they be demotivating and, and all those things? Yes. But ultimately we get to choose how we're going to respond to them. And, it, and I'm a believer that if we can keep that hope and optimism alive and continue to move forward and you know, be as productive as we can, new great opportunities will emerge and we'll have yeah. the chance to do other things. And in fact, as I look back over the arc of my life up to this point, I'm, you know, mid 40, so I'm still fairly young, but I've lived a good portion of life too. And as I look back over the arc of my life, I can see that pattern again and again and again. And ultimately, I wouldn't change anything. 
really. Yeah. No, nothing major about my life path um, because everything has gotten me where I am and it's, it's informed me and I've learned lessons and, and things have worked out great and in many ways better than I could have hoped for or planned you know, back when I was starting my career. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that was certainly a setback I had. And uh, ultimately, I'm really grateful for it. Well, and you know, there are a couple things that I hear in that. Let me see what you think of this. But the first thing that I hear in that is that you, you know, this was your first major career setback and, uh, you know, privilege or not, like there is a certain relativity to things, right? Like it was a big deal for you and you went into a funk and, and were down and it was pretty awful and a little self-loathing. Um, and then you got to this point where you realized you had a choice. And to me, what I think I hear in that experience is that this was one of the first really big moments where you really had to decide yourself whether you believed in you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's, and, that's accurate. Yeah. And what an incredible thing to be put through because once you did decide, yeah, okay, I'm really tempted to give up. I'm really tempted to not believe in myself. I'm really tempted to just, you know, hate the fact that I didn't get this and think I'm not worthy and all that, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to go bring what I've got and do it. And I believe in me. And so, you know, that's a fabulous moment that I think everybody goes through, especially people who are entrepreneurs or in yeah. business or, you know, up to big things. Cause you're just going to get pushed up against whether you actually believe in you, you know? So that's the first big thing I hear and congratulations on choosing to believe in yourself. It's, it's, it's a really big deal. It's a super big deal. And then the, the, um, the other thing that I hear in that is, uh, is you looked back over your life and you wouldn't make, you wouldn't make any major changes. And, and it reminds me of a place that I was a while ago. This is now quite a while ago, but it was so pivotal. I was just, I'd, I'd raised, I had a company, we raised over $80 million uh, in Silicon Valley. We were dot-com darlings. Then we went out in the dot-com crash. We went under and it was over. And I went through total self-loathing. I almost died of an autoimmune disease. I was so upset. Um, and, you know, and, and all of that stuff. And I had to decide then whether I was going to keep going. And it actually took me a really long time, kind of too long to decide that I was going to keep going. But I, you know, since I didn't die, I kept going. It was, that was really the lowest, I think, point for me. But the other thing that I did is I was really resentful of the fact that I was at this place in my life where I didn't have a relationship. I didn't have savings. I didn't own a house. I didn't have kids. I, like all the things that I thought I should have done by then. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, th and then I sat down and I looked back over my life at all the major places where I could have done something different. You know, like when big words went out of business, I could have at least applied for a job at Google or a job at Amazon. And they definitely know who knew who I was and yeah. who we were. And I could have done that, but I didn't. And as I thought about it a couple of years later, resentful of where I was, I realized, well, okay, if I wouldn't change anything that I did, then 
like I'm responsible for being where I am. And if I'm responsible for being where I am, like, then I'll just aim at where I want to go now and try to get there now, you know? And, uh, it was a huge realization for me to own myself and my life and my choices. And I think that's kind of what I heard in the background as well for you. You wouldn't have changed anything, right? Yeah. And I mean, I, that, that may sound silly to say, uh, I d- does that mean I don't have any regrets? No. Uh, you know, are there mistakes well, yeah, that I made? No. That, you know, all, all those things. Sure. Have I lived a perfect life? Uh, absolutely not. No. Um, are there regrets? Yes. Are there mistakes? Yes. But overall, yeah. I mean, I, I, I see the overall, the overall arc of my life as being one that has gotten me to where I am with the many, you know, joys in my life and the career opportunities, yeah. the family opportunities, you know, all those sorts of things. And you know, it's, it's hard to go through those setbacks. Um, but when you can learn to kind of bounce back from them, uh, it, they can make you stronger. And again, that sounds cheesy. Uh, I, I get it, but it's no, true. It's I mean, true, you know, also true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, well, so that's awesome. And, and, uh, and thanks for sharing that. Um, you know, as I alluded to earlier, it seems like UVU is uh, a a pretty big difference maker here in the Silicon Slopes and for, you know, Salt Lake City and this whole Wasatch Front, yeah. um, you know, tech hub. And, uh, you know, I spent, as, as you can guess, I spent a long time in Silicon Valley. I also was in LA for a long time. Um, doing internet things there wasn't quite as, as developed as Silicon Valley, but it was still a great ecosystem. And this Silicon slopes ecosystem is a pretty amazing thing. What, what, you know, tell us about it a little bit, John, tell us about, about kind of what you think of Silicon slopes, what you think of what Utah Valley university has contributed and, and, you know, anything else that you think goes into this. Yeah, I mean, it's been really interesting. Uh, for a long time, Utah, Utah County, Salt Lake counties in, in, in the valleys, they've been a, a hub in the U.S. for entrepreneurial activity. Uh, so I, a little context, I, I've been at UVU now for 13 years. Um, I'm not from Utah, but I, I landed in Utah for college and never left. And so I did my undergrad, master's, and PhD all at different universities in Utah. And then I landed at UDU. And so I've been in Utah now for 22 years. Uh, it's mm-hmm. been interesting to see the development of all of this uh, during that time. I bet. Yeah. Um, and so Silicon Slopes wasn't a thing. That, that was a term that started to get used, you know, maybe five, six years ago, maybe a little bit longer. Um, but the entrepreneurial activity piece, that's been vibrant as long as I've lived in Utah and probably pre, yeah. you know, 22 years ago. And so yeah. you know, lots of, lots of people in part fueled by the, the major universities um, in the region. Uh, so you have lots of, of a really highly educated workforce, uh, lots of entrepreneurial uh, intention and activity. Right. And so all these cool yeah. things have been spinning up and then you started to see the launch of some of, you know, Utah's first unicorns started to, to emerge. And then, and then we started to be a location where some of the big tech companies decided to put their headquarters. And then, so that just started to build out that ecosystem as you were describing to where we are today, where it's a hotbed for tech 
particularly the tech um, types of entrepreneurial activities, both new startups, but also quite established tech companies that have decided to headquarter here. Uh, so it's just really dynamic. It's a lot of fun. And it's it's been really fun to see uh, the growth of Silicon Slopes. Silicon Slopes, for anyone who is familiar with the Wasatch Front, you know, kind of the the, the I-15 corridor, Salt Lake down through Utah County to, to Orem and Provo and further, um, there, there's a place called Draper. That's kind of right at what we call point of the mountain. So as you're going up a uh, uh-huh. high scene, um, you're kind of going from one valley to the next valley and you go over the, the point of the mountain. Um, Draper is, is really that hub space for a lot of where the Silicon Slopes activity is happening. And that has just transformed over the last decade. In fact, yeah. it, it, it was the home. It, I guess it still is the home of the Utah state prison which is being relocated out to the West Desert just because of all of the development. And so there, it, it needed to be updated anyway. So, that, so the legislature, yep. instead of, you know, refurbishing for hundreds of millions of dollars, this old prison, let's, let's move it, build a new facility. And then we'll have all this prime real estate uh, that used to be in the middle of nowhere, but now it's right in the heart of the hub of Silicon Slopes, right. for all these new tech companies. So literally the entire landscape has been, shifting and transforming the entire ecosystem has been transforming it's super exciting to see and you know the the lists come out about like best places to work best pace places to live best economies in the nation utah is always at the top of the list no matter what list you're talking about um you know where i live in orem utah about 40 minutes south of salt lake city provo orem area is always listed you know in, in one of the best uh top you know top five yeah or top number one or two or three um, best places for families to live and such. And, and Utah is always listed as one of the top, if not top economies, growing economies in the country. And so it's just, we're attracting lots of, of new talents. We're uh, attracting all sorts of great companies. That's the ecosystem. That's the, the, the environment. So now bring in Utah Valley university. Um, you know, we're kind of in between the Brigham young university, uh, system there in Provo and the University of Utah up in Salt Lake City and some other um, universities in, in the, the area as well. And UVU has emerged as the largest institution of higher education in the state of Utah, uh, serving, uh, we fluctuate a little bit, but somewhere you know in the low 40s, 40 to 43,000 students a, a semester that are at UVU. And we serve a, a unique role. So, you know, the BYUs and the Utah University of Utah's, um, they're more of a research institution kind of focus. And they, they produce all sorts of really great people. Um, but a lot of them don't stay here in Utah. A lot of them leave and go to other parts of the country or other parts of the world uh, as they start their careers. At UVU, we serve Utah and about 85 plus percent of our graduates stay in Utah and they stay along the Wasatch Front. And so mm. chances are that if you're in Utah, you know, UVU grads uh, and, and we feel like they're making a difference in the workforce. We're open enrollment. So we, one of our mottos is come as you are. Uh, we take everybody, which poses some unique challenges. Uh, <laughs> but we But we focus on Delta. So, you know, you look at, the major universities, uh, the Harvards, 
and the Ivy League universities of the world. They're amazing. They produce, they, they have wonderful students uh, that go out and have very successful careers. But when you think about the change from the time that person comes into the university to the time they leave, it's, it's a relatively small change because they're already entering at a very high level. Uh, yeah. and, and frankly, they often come from a lot of privilege and, and, and uh, upper, you know, middle class, upper class backgrounds and all those sorts of things. So they come in already pretty capable, ready to achieve. And then the Harvards or the other Ivy Leagues, the other major universities, they add a little bit more. And then you go out, you have the network, you, you have a successful career. Um, UVU, our model is just different. We take everybody. Uh, and we have some of the best, amazing, well-prepared students in the world, but we also have some students that never graduated high school. They just got their GED. Now they're trying to get a second chance at life. Maybe they're coming back in their 30s. They decide, I need to get an education. I need to get a certificate or a degree. So we have the whole gamut. We have the whole spectrum. Um, and that, again, poses challenges, but it also means our opportunity for Delta is, is enormous because- yeah. I mean, I get to see with my students every day, um, students that come in at the beginning of the program. Uh, I, I, I teach, I, I run our human resource management, organizational leadership programs. And so, you know, I, I don't see students really until they get to their junior or senior year. Um, but, what, you know, I'll see a student who may have had a pretty um, challenging upbringing in life up to the point, and now they're coming back to UVU and they struggled and maybe their writing isn't great. Their, their quantitative reasoning isn't great. Uh, they, you know, they, they just need a lot of support and they, they go through those first couple of years at UVU. They get that support. They start to make something of themselves. They start to build their confidence. Now as a junior and senior, they come into my programs. Now I'm trying to make them career ready to go out and make a difference. And I can see an additional tremendous Delta change in them where, you know, they start at a five and by the time they leave, you know, they may not get to a 10, but I see them get up to a nine. And it's so rewarding to see that kind of a shift and that kind of a change. And the other, so in addition to us, you know, promoting this idea of come as you are, we'll meet you where you are, we'll help uh, you become something great from where you start. Uh, we also have this, this mantra around engaged learning and innovation. So UVU is all about making sure that our students have experiential learning opportunities. So they're not just coming to school to, to sit in a classroom, have some nice discussions, do a couple case studies, um, read some interesting things and learn some stuff and kind of conceptually wrestle with things. That happens. Uh, I think that's part of any important, you know, any good liberal arts education. <clears throat> but focus on the ability of students to develop actual skills, competencies and capabilities. And so they go through a lot of experiential learning activities. So, for example, in, in the HR program at UVU, every single student that goes through our program, not only will they complete multiple internships where they're working, you know, not just getting coffee and making copies and making lunch runs, but where they're actually working in HR functions with companies, uh, really uh, honing their HR skills. They, they do a couple of those internships before they graduate, but they also will do a handful, at least for up to seven or eight consulting projects, area organizations as part of their classes. Uh, so they'll, they'll get experience working in teams and working effectively in teams. They'll get experience working in different types of organizations uh, in Utah, uh, tech companies, uh, but also other types of companies, even government organizations or nonprofits. 
and they get that exposure to large, small, various organizational types and doing different HR functions, different types of HR roles. So by the time they're done, they have not just learned about HR, but they've experienced HR extensively. Uh, so we pride ourselves on producing, sho- you know, I call them shovel-ready students, students that are ready yeah. to hit the ground running. They're not going to come into your organization and you're going to be like, what in the world did you learn at the university for the last four years? Now I have to train you and teach you everything so you can function. We hear that, you know, that from employers sometimes. That's kind of a big critique of higher ed right now. Those aren't our students. Our students leave ready to make a difference right away. And so that's that's why the Silicon Slopes and other, you know, uh, that the whole economy in Utah is made stronger because of our UVU students, because of our focus, not on just the liberal arts education, but the career readiness, the, the skills development, the competencies and capabilities to help them to be successful. We've found uh, repeatedly that employers love hiring our students because they know that they're, they're going to get people with grit, with a work ethic, who have who know how to learn and are committed to lifelong learning. That's really cool. Well, that, I mean, so that's a big, uh, that's kind of a big light bulb moment for me about what's up over there at UVU and why I keep hearing about y'all. I think that engaged learning with experience and, you know, as you say, shovel ready students, that's pretty classic. Yeah. And it's, it's a lot of fun. I've, I've taught at a lot of different places and I've enjoyed every single one of those experiences. I love meeting with students. I love teaching undergrad, grad students at any level. It's, it's fantastic, but I wouldn't trade my opportunity with students here for anything because the types of students that I get, I I often think, you know, when I'm sitting in a class with my students, um, undergrad students and our demographics are a little bit different. So at a traditional university, you know, you might have that traditional demographic, 18 to 22 year olds um, that come to the university, they're getting trained up and then they're going to go off and do stuff at UVU because we're serving everyone and, and anyone and people have different life paths. Uh, we're like 45% of our students are first gen students. Um, we, you know, we just have a much more diverse student body than many of the other universities yeah. in the state. Um, but when they come to class and I'm sitting in those classes, you know, I'll, I'll have students, you know, my average class age is not, you know, late teens, early twenties. My average class age is, is probably late twenties, um, to early thirties. So, Uh, there's mature people with a lot of life experience, with a lot of work experience, not necessarily relevant, you know, work experience that's directly related to the field of HR, but they have relevant relevant life experience, relevant relevant work experience. And it it makes for almost like an executive education kind of a a situation, which is very different than what I've experienced. You know, when I've taught at other universities with 18 to 22 year olds, nothing against them. But it's just a, you're at a different life stage. You, you, you've experienced different things. And there, there's just a richness of, of the kind of discussions and conversations we have and what students bring to the projects that we do because of the, the, the experience that they've had. I mean, and I got to imagine they're a lot more serious about why they're there. Like they're much clearer on why they're in your class yes. that day. Yes. Because I mean, of that. We, we certainly have students that sometimes they, you know, just like anyone, we'll have students that sometimes aren't always as committed as we'd hope, but the vast majority, absolutely. They're here because they have decided that they need this to better their lives, that they, yeah. they need a credential, a certificate, a degree 
to move in the direction of, of a better career, to better support their families, to better give back to their community. Yeah. And they're there because they want to learn, they want to grow, they want to apply what they're learning. And so it makes for dynamic class environments, which yeah. is just a lot of fun. So John, let's pivot for a minute to kind of your focus. And um, this is sort of out of the blue, different different angle than what we've been talking about. But before we wind up, I'd love to know, you know, we're talking in August of 2022 and the workforce has been through a bunch of stuff over the last few years. And, you know, I wonder what, what are you seeing out there right now from your view as a, as a professor, as a consultant, as somebody who's interested in HR and things like that, you know, what are you seeing out there? What could we share with the audience that would be useful um, just in terms of what you're noticing and what they should be thinking or could be thinking or noticing for the coming several years? Yeah. I, I, so I do a lot of work, um, both research, teaching and consulting work and, and looking at the changing workforce and the future of work. Uh, so this is a topic I could, we could talk about for a really, really long time, <laughs> but I'll, I'll try to, uh, to distill it down to some, some key points that I think are really important to consider. Um, you've already alluded to the fact that, you know, over these last few years, the last couple of years during the pandemic, we've seen big shifts and right now it's a really tight labor market. Companies are wrestling with, do we keep, you know, employees say they want the flexibility of remote work. Do we keep remote work? Do we bring people back to the office? Do we do some sort of a hybrid arrangement? If so, what does that look like? So organizations are wrestling with all of this, all while all the while um, employees have a lot of leverage because it's a tight labor market. So employees are saying, no, I, I, I want to keep the flexibility I've enjoyed the last two years. I want to uh, be able to work remotely. If, if we're going to work hybrid or I need to be in person, uh, there needs to be a real reason behind it and needs to make sense. Like don't no no edicts, no just saying it's this way because I said so. That doesn't resonate, especially with younger millennial and Gen Z workers. They're you you say that to them, they're gonna say, okay, screw you, and they're gonna leave. <laughs> and then you're right. gonna have to find more people. Uh, and those people don't exist. It's just really hard to get good talent right now. And so we need to find ways to tap into um the labor market uh, that exists and people want the flexibility. Um, now, of course, remote work and hybrid work existed before the pandemic, but it didn't uh, exist at this scale. Uh, and yeah. so many organizations and so many individuals were so resistant to it. Uh, but yeah. the, the, the pandemic accelerated the rate of change and many people, many organizations who were resistant learned that, Hey, this is actually, great and beneficial in many ways. And, and uh, we can leverage this uh, individuals who thought they would never want to work remotely over the last couple of years have learned, Hey, I love working remotely. <laughs> and and yeah. they've decided that they, you know, they want to continue at least to some extent with that flexibility. <clears throat> so those types of accelerations have happened in just the shifting mindset of workers and organizations over the last couple of years. And I think that's really super interesting in and of itself. But we also look at the technological disruptions that have been happening. And again, technological disruption isn't new ever since the first wave of the Industrial Revolution. Really, for the history of humankind, we've been innovating and creating new ways to do things better and more efficiently and, and increase our productivity. And people yeah. say that now we're in the fourth wave of the Industrial Revolution, the tech revolution, uh, with uh, increase in computing 
capacity, uh, the lowering cost of memory uh, for computing. Uh, and that combination uh, is allowing us to do more and more. So not only AI, deep machine learning, advanced robotics, those sorts of things, but just new technologies that allow us to connect easier, uh, to work remotely, to do those sorts of things. Now we're even talking about the metaverse, potentially shifting the way we we interact with each other, um, not just in work, but in, in all aspects of life. You know, so in the next five years, that that rate of change of technolo technological innovation and disruption has already been steep. And I think it's only going to get steeper. And the question then becomes, are we ready to lean into that change or are we going to resist it every step of the way? Uh, many, you know, most people, human nature, we tend to resist change. We like things comfortable. We like at least the, the illusion of certainty. And, and so <laughs> when things get disrupted, it's an illusion. Yeah. Feel That's funny. We resist and we try to retrench and we try to go back to the way things were. And so we see plenty of that right now. Um, but I don't think we're stopping the ship. I don't think we're, we're going to slow down the rate of technological change. And so the question is, are we going to try to be on that wave or even ahead of that wave, or are we going to get swallowed up by the wave? Uh, and that's the question I think organizational leaders have to think about strategically right now. Um, if they're going to be even relevant in five years, they're going to have to figure out how to, to lean into that technological disruption. Yeah. So we got to ride the wave or else it's going to wipe us out. I think so. Um, yeah. And I mean, there's, there's a lot more that goes into it than that. And we could, we could sure. nuance this all day long, but, but ultimately I think those are some of the, the meta drivers of change that we see globally and it's going to change the nature of work. It's going to shift the way our relation, the way we relate to work and the relationship between employers and employees, um, even things like the rise of the gig economy. Now, gig economy is not new. That's been around since the beginning of, uh, you know, humans living on this earth. There's been gig economy. Yeah. But, but when you look at the last 50 years of economic structures around the world, uh, the, the, the rise of the gig economy over the last two decades has only, you know, the, it's again, a, kind of this exponential curve and it's only continued to rapidly increase. And right now we know that younger millennials and Gen Z's are more than ever embracing that as a viable career option. So yep. whereas in the past, you know, you kind of go, you go through high school, you graduate, you go to college, you graduate, you get a job at a corporation. Eventually, maybe you decide you want to start your own business or, or hang your own shingle or whatever, but there's kind of that path. And it's, it was the rarity to have someone that did something different. Now it's so easy to connect with people um, through various gig economy platforms to, to work. And, and many younger people, their priorities are just so different that they're, they just, they don't want to work that corporate job. And they're saying, ah, I, I don't even necessarily want to go to university. I'm just going to, you know, go be a Lyft or an Uber driver, or I'm going to uh, get into Airbnb stuff, or I'm going to, you know, a thousand things, right? You can, there's so many right. things you can do. And, and more and more people are deciding that they just want to do that instead of kind of the traditional corporate grind and, and trying to get to a place where you're, you're uh, good with your career, you know, 20 years down the road. Uh, so I, that's something that's really interesting to me. And I think, again, the pandemic has only accelerated that shift. Yeah. Uh, you know, people talk about the great resignation. I've also heard people frame it up as the great reevaluation or the great reawakening. Yeah. People, people yes. 
have taken a good hard look at their priorities. They they have shifted, you know, what they want their focus to be. And, you know, maybe they're not willing to do soul crushing, mind numbing work for a corporation <laughs> anymore. Whereas before they yeah. were okay with that. Right. Not yeah. to say that all work in corporations is soul crushing or mind numbing, but no, I mean, like people saying, I want more control over my own life. I want more control over how I live each day. I want to have more control over the creative things that I do. Uh, and, and that's led to increased levels of gig work. Well, and you know, it kind of, it kind of makes me think because I'm, as I'm listening to you talk and as I, I can feel what you're saying in my own life heavily, and I can only imagine what it's like running a really large organization that's trying to navigate through this, all this change all at once so fast, it's probably not going to ever slow down. And I, and I kind of, I'm like, wow, what does a leader do? You know, what do you do? And I think it kind of loops back to where we started, right? If you just love people and you just really genuinely care about people and you're willing to stand for their greatness and, you know, and, and pat them on the back when they do well and push them when they need pushing and, and really come from caring about them. I just think, you know, everything else is changing too fast to really pin down. Right. So it's, it's true. And well, and what you're saying also, it speaks to how, how kind of the traditional model of corporate structure and leadership has been shifting. Again, this, this isn't like brand new or anything other lots of people talk about this but we've seen this shift even more rapidly in recent years and that is the big steep pyramid hierarchical structured organizations um the top-down leadership kind of command control approach to leadership you do what i say because i said so that kind of leadership those types of organizations those are becoming dinosaurs um the 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 rate of change requires more agility it requires flatter organizations it requires people to uh, it, it requires leaders to be able to collectively gather the the, the collective insights uh, and genius of everyone on their team. And a leader cannot, uh, I don't think a leader ever could have been an expert on everything that happens in their organization or their team, but maybe it was a little bit more possible, you know, 50 years ago in a factory setting. But today, the rate of change and the technical expertise of everyone on your team, you have to lean on that expertise and you have to trust in your people uh, and you have to empower them and create an environment where they can share and have the psychological safety to be able to share openly and to contribute. And unless you can create that kind of an environment, you're you're totally going to fall behind. Um, So that speaks directly to what we were talking about earlier on. You have to build foundations of trust with your people, mutual accountability. And you have to create a safe space where everyone can contribute and get diversity of thought, diversity of ideas um, to bring about the best innovations uh, to create the best outcomes and to meet, you know, the needs in the market and to add value to the market. Uh, And that requires a different type of leader that requires, you know, fundamentally rethinking the way we structure our organizations and the way that we build our teams. Um, So a lot of that, I think, is going to have to shift if it hasn't already started to shift in organizations and ultimately it comes back to empathy. It comes back to genuine caring and authentically caring for your people. That's going to get you so, so far. I totally agree. So Jonathan, if people want to follow you, is there a particular platform you're, you're 
active on more or is there what what is the best places for people to find you and i'll definitely put all that in the show notes so they can sure. see it up front linkedin is probably the best place i post there often and so jonathan h westover if you search that in linkedin i'll pop right up uh, you can check out my consulting website at innovativehumancapital.com there's all sorts of stuff there you can check out lots of free resources and as you mentioned at the beginning of the episode uh, my podcast, the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, is one that I would definitely encourage you to check out. It, it started out as a pandemic project, and it turned into something that I just, it's one of the highlights of every day. And I, almost every day, I record a new interview with thought leaders, executives, and researchers in the space of work and organizations from across the world. And I publish episodes daily, about 30 minutes in length and just great conversations with really interesting people and uh, would encourage you to give that a, a look and check it out. Great. We'll have links to all of that stuff in the episode notes. And so Jonathan, before I let you go, is there anything else that I, that I maybe should have asked you, or is there anything else that you has been, you know, going through your mind that you want to say before you go? No, just, you know, maybe to reiterate the general Kind of tenor and theme of, of this conversation. I'm a big believer in lifelong learning. I wouldn't be a professor if I didn't believe that, I suppose. But I think gone are the days where we can kind of get trained up at one point in our life, and then that's going to see us through an entire career. People shift jobs, they sh shift entire careers multiple times during their work life. We just need to embrace this idea of lifelong learning and constantly be retooling ourselves and reskilling and upskilling ourselves and helping those around us to do the same. And as a leader, I think that's one of my biggest responsibilities is that I need to make sure that I'm helping everyone around me fulfill their potential. Uh, rising tides lifts all ships. And so if I'm focusing on the development of my people, they're going to perform better. They're going to make me look better as a leader. It's a win-win all the way around. And so I think that needs to be a continuous focus, certainly something I try to do. And uh, I appreciate, I really appreciate you allowing me to, to have the time to share some of these ideas with you today. Well, it's been my pleasure, John, and I really appreciate you taking the time. And, uh, and I also appreciate you listening. Thank you for joining us today. If you like speak like a leader dot show and you have a moment, please give us a big old five-star rating and uh, tell your friends about us. And Jonathan, uh, I, I look forward to keeping in touch with you and, and thank you for what you and the uh, UVU are doing for the economy here in, in Utah. And, uh, and thank you very much for sharing all of this with us today. Appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining the Speak Like a Leader podcast. Go be awesome.